0: The four hundred and eightieth year after the Israelites left the land of Egypt, in the month of Ziv, that is the second month, in the fourth year of his reign over Israel, Solomon began to build the house of the God of Israel. Chapter six, verse one of the book of Kings. Welcome to A History of the Jewish People, Episode 7, The Builder, Part 2. As of this episode, this show is no longer being recorded on my iPhone using the Voice Memos app. New year, new microphone, so hopefully the audio quality will be a bit better and more consistent moving forward. Sorry for making you all suffer a little bit through the first six episodes. Anyway, in the last episode, we discussed the life and times of King Solomon, the third king of the United Monarchy. At least according to conventional histories. As we mentioned, biblical archaeology of the last few decades has created skepticism around whether or not Solomon really ruled all of Israel, and whether or not the building projects attributed to him actually date to the 10th century BCE. This week, we'll focus on Jerusalem, looking at the history of the city before the reign of King Solomon and the subsequent First Temple. We'll also take this moment to see what ancient Israelite worship would have looked like under the early kings of Judah. Before we jump into the material, I should mention that we won't be following the usual structure of looking at the biblical stories first and then turning to the archaeological evidence. Both will be woven together throughout our look at Jerusalem. For the temple, the best evidence we have for what it would have looked like is in fact the biblical account itself, since, well, the writers of the Book of Kings could actually see it with their own eyes, and many of the details they would have had no need to fabricate. The history of its construction, notably whether Solomon was the one to build the temple, or whether it was later attributed to him, are murky, but since nothing of the original structure survives, we'll just be focusing on the building itself, and not so much how it was made. We'll also take a look at some of the other surviving Near Eastern and Israelite temples that could shed light on the one supposedly built by Solomon. So, with that out of the way, let's take a look at the capital of the Kingdom of Judah. Jerusalem, like most cities in Palestine, is old. Shocker. Its first permanent inhabitants settled down around 5,000 years ago, likely because of its abundant source of water. And by 1700 BCE, Jerusalem was being built with stone boasting some fortifications and water systems. In the Late Bronze Age, Jerusalem was even included in the Amarna letters, the corpus of a few hundred cuneiform letters to and from the Pharaoh Akhenaten. Jerusalem's name is a remnant of its Canaanite past, combining the roots Ir, for city, and Shalem, a Canaanite deity whose name derives from the word for peace, Shalom in modern Hebrew, making Jerusalem the city of the god Shalem. Despite its longevity and later importance, Jerusalem at the time was tiny, taking up only about 12 acres by the time of King David, who supposedly conquered the city from the Jebusites and established it as his capital. The original site of the city was the aptly named Ir David, the City of David, which today sits just outside of the Old City, surrounded by Ottoman walls dating from the 16th century CE. It's at the point of a hill, Mount Moriah, whose east side drops off sharply into the Kidron Valley. Since the geography can be a bit tough to visualize, I've posted a few maps on the website. Perhaps the most important feature of the City of David was the Gihon Spring down in the Kidron Valley. This year-round source of fresh water was vital to the construction and survival of Jerusalem, and even played a spiritual role in the city, being the location of Solomon's anointment as king. Ruins of two buildings, attributed to the reign of King David, have been uncovered in the city of David. The accurately named large stone structure and the stepped stone structure, located at the eastern side of Mount Moriah, overlooking the Kidron Valley. Unfortunately, Jerusalem is a notoriously impossible city to excavate because of the continuous occupation, the religious significance of the Temple Mount, and the constant new constructions that have been carried out over the past three millennia. Take, for example, the two stone structures. The large stone structure sits on top of the hill, while the stepped stone structure spills down over its slopes. Mixed in with these ruins are other Iron Age II and Hasmonean ruins, complicating the site's history. Archaeologists have also known about the site's importance for over a century. This means that, like Gezer, the large stone structure of the city of David was excavated with poor archaeological practices by Macalester who backfilled after excavation. When it was dug up again in the early 2000s, therefore, few of the finds could be reliably considered to be in situ, left undisturbed by the ancients from 3,000 years ago. At least, that's what Israel Finkelstein has argued. Here we see a clear divide between the conservatives and the more radical scholars. The conservatives, led here by Eilat Mazar, who excavated the site, Amichai Mazar, and Avraham Faust, have argued strictly for Davidic construction of the large and stepped stone structures in the Iron Age I or the very early Iron Age IIa periods. Finkelstein, Zeev Herzog, and David Ushishkin have opposed the traditional dating, arguing that the two structures were built separately during the late Iron Age IIa and even the Hasmonean periods. I won't dwell for long on the stone structures, because our focus this week is on the constructions of King Solomon, and because, frankly, the only things I can tell you for certain are what the two camps agree on. What they do seem to agree on is that some version of the stepped and large stone structures had been built in the Iron Age 1 and 2a periods, and those remains include pottery and evidence of metallurgy, and could possibly have been part of a Davidic or Solomonic palace complex. Whatever remains of David's constructions in Jerusalem, less is preserved of Solomon's. By the time of Solomon's reign, we can assume that Jerusalem, if somewhat built in stone, would have still been quite small, with a population numbering in the low thousands. Though the population figure would grow only gradually over the next few centuries, Solomon expanded the city limits quite rapidly. Just to the north of the city of David now stands the Western Wall, or the Kotel, and the Temple Mount, the original site of the temple of solomon so let's explore up there and see the greatest wonder of the kingdom of judah now i say the kingdom of judah because it is the crown jewel of the kingdom of judah not israel judaism the eventual religion of the judahites was centered around jerusalem and at the temple at its heart the later biblical writers and perhaps the early israelites considered israel and judah to ultimately be one people their religious practices would begin to diverge here in our story. Judah, more impoverished than its northern counterpart, will slowly move towards monotheism centered around the worship of the Israelite god in the sole temple in Jerusalem. For now, it is not the only temple, but Judahite theology will one day single it out as such. We should note, however, that the religion of the kingdom of Israel does in fact live on. The Samaritans do not consider Jerusalem to be the seat of their god, but instead worship on Mount Gerizim, about 50 miles to the north. Lastly, before we jump into Solomon's temple, I'd like to take a moment to talk about Egyptian temples. We have a tendency to consider the people of Israel and Judah in a vacuum, a trend I've been trying to buck on this show. While monotheistic worship would eventually become a unique development among the Judahites, their temple was far from out of place in the ancient world, and while I can find many parallels for the Temple of Solomon among the ruins of the Near East, my own specialty is in ancient Egypt, so that is where we'll turn. Think about the places you hold sacred today. It might be an open space where people can gather to worship together. It might have tall ceilings, wide walls, and plenty of natural light. Maybe the center of worship, the bima, for Jewish listeners is at the back of your space or maybe it's in the middle surrounded by the congregation or perhaps your sacred space is a place in nature itself the divine was considered a little differently in the near east in egypt two thousand years of sacred architecture had landed on a pretty standard model for temple designs by the 10th century bce temples unlike those of today were first and foremost the house of the patron deity they were dark places They were also restrictive, not meant to be accessed by the average person. In fact, they got more restrictive the farther back a person went, just like ancient Canaanite houses. Egyptian temples would even get physically narrower, and sometimes even higher, as they continued, mimicking in reverse the history of the world since the rising of the primeval mound out of the waters of chaos. Right at the end, then, was the darkest and most sacred place, the shrine of the temple's god. Though the first temple, built by Solomon, probably would not have housed a physical image of the Israelite god, it was nonetheless still considered his dwelling. In fact, the Israelite god's house was so restrictive that the most intimate place, the shrine at the back, could only be entered once a year, a holiday which was observed, as of publishing, last Sunday to Monday, Yom Kippur. Today, not a trace of Solomon's temple remains, since it was destroyed by the Babylonians. The western wall, as well as the less well-known southern wall, were part of King Herod's additions to the second temple complex much later. So, let's go back just about 3,000 years and take a look at the Temple of Solomon. Unfortunately, I can't actually get anywhere near the temple itself. You see, I'm probably just of the tribe of Judah, a commoner if you will. The Levites, and the Kohanim in particular, were the designated priests of ancient Israel. This practice might not have been crystallized by the time of King Solomon, whose brothers were said to have served as priests, despite their being Judahites. The restriction of the priesthood would, however, soon become common, and descent from the ancient Levites in Kohanim can still be seen in the last names, and, in fact, in the Y chromosome, which is passed down paternally. The high priests of the Samaritans trace their descent back to Aaron, the first Kohen. While claiming any ancestry that far back is questionable, they certainly have kept the chain alive for millennia at the very least. So let's just fudge the numbers and say that we, dear listener, have a sort of backstage pass to visit the first temple. It's a short climb to the north from the city of David, and we'll have to bring some water from the Gihon Spring to survive in the harsh late summer heat. The temple is oriented east west, so we'll first enter the outer courtyard from the east, the place of worship for the average Israelite, and then proceed into the inner court, the precinct of the priesthood. Above us towers the temple, forty five feet or about fourteen meters tall, making the temple about three stories tall by modern standards. And it would have looked even more bulky, since around the structure of the temple itself was a shorter structure, still three stories tall, built of cedar wood. These rooms, technically outside of the temple itself, yet clearly within the sacred precinct, served the secular functions of the temple complex. Ancient peoples, especially in the Near East, often did not distinguish between religious affairs and political or state affairs. Taxation, therefore, was conducted under the auspices of religion, similarly to the tithe exacted by the medieval Catholic church. For the Israelites, the three harvest festivals of Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot were the occasions for tax collection. Rural farmers were originally expected to bring their produce to a local cult site, a practice that was later centralized around the Temple of Jerusalem. Though the food was technically given for sacrifices, sacrificing did not mean wasting the goods. Most cereal products would have been stored in these side buildings, which would have served as the state treasury. A portion may have been baked into bread and presented as an offering for the god, but after a waiting period it could have been enjoyed by the priesthood. Similarly, burnt meat offerings were likely a massive barbecue, with the god enjoying the smell of the burning meat and the priest partaking in its tasty flesh. Speaking of burnt sacrifices, in the inner court stand some impressive pieces in their own right including an altar used for the burnt sacrifices made three times a day, and rabbinic Judaism later replaced by the thrice-daily recitation of the Amidah, still practiced today. Unfortunately, this altar is only mentioned in the Book of Chronicles, and may reflect a later renovation of the temple. It would have been a stone, it would have been a stone platform measuring three cubits, or four and a half feet, tall, and may have included horns, A peculiar feature typical of Israelite altars. An almost identical one was discovered at Beersheva in 1973 by Yohanan Aharoni, who worked on the chronology of the gates of Gezer, Hazor, and Megiddo. This altar, now on display at the Israel Museum, would have stood at the same height and featured horns at all four corners. Though the horns, which look like small crenellations, were vital to the sacred structure of an altar, Their purpose remains a mystery. Incidentally, the burnt offerings altar found at 'er Beersheba was the second one found in Iron Age Judah. We'll discuss the first one, also discovered by Aharoni, later this episode. Moving beyond the altar, there are quite a few other interesting objects scattered around the inner court. Solomon commissioned a bronze worker from Tyre, the son of a Phoenician coppersmith and an Israelite woman from the tribe of Naphtali. The first, and also strangest of his works, were two columns, 18 cubits tall. The capitals of these columns were decorated like lilies, and the columns themselves were adorned with hundreds of pomegranate designs. They probably would have been freestanding in front of the porch of the temple, though some models depict them supporting the portico itself. What made them strange was not anything about their design, however, but the fact that they were each named. Chapter 7 of the Book of Kings says that the one on the right of the portico was named Yachin, and the one on the left was called Boaz. And then, it moves on with no further explanation. And so shall we. Next up among the works of bronze is what the Book of Kings calls, in an objectively awesome description, a sea of cast metal. It is a massive basin, possibly used for ritual purification. Mikvot, Spring water baths for spiritual cleansing wouldn't appear for almost a millennium, so it could have served a similar purpose for the first temple. The tank, located to the southeast side of the temple, on its right side, measured 15 feet in diameter and supposedly held the equivalent of 2,000 baths. This massive piece of cast bronze was supported by 12 small bull figures, three facing each cardinal direction. Hiram, the coppersmith, also made ten smaller bronze baths, measuring six feet by six feet, which were placed five on either side of the temple. These were inlaid with decorations of lions, oxen, cherubim, palm trees, and spiral designs. We'll move next into the temple proper, the Beit HaMikdash of the Holy House. When described in the Book of Kings, it is simply referred to as the house since that's exactly what it was thought to be, the house of the god. The temple precinct, including the outer court, the inner court, the storms, and the bronze works, had a mix of secular and religious functions, but the house of the god itself was especially sacred. The book of kings, in fact, makes clear that the stones used to build the temple were shaped at the quarry so that no sharp tools would need to be used at the site of the temple, thus avoiding any profanity of the sacred space. The first part of any house, of course, is the porch and the entryway. Passing between Yachin and Boaz, we find ourselves in the portico of the house, or the area known as the Ulam. At the back of the Ulam was the doorway to the main hall of the temple. The double doors, built of cypress wood, were flanked by four doorposts made of olive wood. The Hebrew says it had four mezuzot, but a mezuzah in biblical times simply meant a doorpost, and its meaning as the prayer stuck to the doorpost came much later. In fact, while the mezuzot of Jews today are thin cases with a scroll containing the Shema and Vehafta prayers, the Samaritans actually follow a different tradition, reading the Vehafta's commandment to put these words on your doorposts as referring to any part of the Torah. So, in Samaritan communities, you might find mezuzot being plaques with their favorite passages of the Torah, written in the Samaritan Hebrew script. Anyway, to return to the very much not-Samaritan Temple of Solomon, the meaning of these four doorposts had stumped scholars for a long time until a small model of a temple was discovered at Khirbet kaafa The model depicts a shrine, with its entrance being made of four recessed openings, each one smaller than the last. This has the effect of turning a large, imposing doorway on the outside, into a small, intimate, and restrictive entrance on the inside. And that was precisely the intention. Each room in an ancient Near Eastern temple was meant to be more exclusive than the last, with the ultimate Holy of Holies being the smallest and most restrictive space. So, it's likely that the first temple shared the design of the Khirbet-Khiafa model, with four increasingly narrow doorposts flanking the cypress double doors. Passing through them, we next enter the hechal, the main hall of the temple. Though the building itself was constructed of stone, the inside is fully paneled with cedar planks imported from the Phoenician city-state of Tyre. The most important part of the hechal was the altar, a smaller altar than the one outside, built of cedar wood, and is supposedly covered in gold. The altar outside the temple would have been used for the burnt offerings, while this one would have probably been used for bread. As I mentioned before, the discovery of an altar at Tel Beersheva was the second time a sacrificial altar was discovered from Biblical Israel. The first discovery was made by Yohanan Aharoni in 1963 at Tel Arad, near Beersheva in the lands of Judah, south of Jerusalem. Tel Arad was a fortified town with a small temple located in its back right corner, northwest according to the compass. The fortress would have been in use from the 10th century down to the 7th century BCE, but the temple found inside was only used for about 50 years during the 8th century BCE. Like Solomon's temple, the temple at Tel Arad was organized along an east-west axis and had an entrance, a main hall, and a shrine along the western edge. The main hall, or the Hechal, had benches on two sides as well as a large altar. At its western edge, were three stairs leading up to the Temple's Holy of Holies, a small room with a large standing stone, possibly to indicate the presence of the Divine. When the Temple was excavated in the 1960s, two monolithic altars were found carefully placed on their sides on the second stair between the Hechal and the Shrine. The altars, though of different sizes, were each carved from a single stone, with a tall base, a niche, and then an offering table at the top. posted images on the website. The altars were clearly placed carefully on the ground, and since the temple appears to have been used last around 715 BCE, it might have been intentionally dismantled as part of Judah's centralization of religion around the Temple of Jerusalem. Before then, temples like this may have been common as religious practices were far more regional. Following the discovery of the temple, The shrine was transported from Arad to the Israel Museum, then under construction, where it can still be seen today. In the 2000s, during a renovation to the Israel Museum, the shrine was moved, and researchers had the opportunity to study with modern techniques the remains of organic material that were discovered on the tops of the altars. In the study, they discovered that these would have been incense altars. On the large altar, Traces of chemical compounds derived from frankincense were discovered, mixed with testosterone and cholesterol, derived from animal fats which would have been added to help the incense burn. On the smaller altar was a more surprising discovery. Cannabis burned, along with the help of animal dung. Together, the frankincense would have provided a pleasant scent and a mystical aura, while the cannabis would have made the worshippers slightly high. The use of drugs in worship has been observed around the world, with opium having been used in Cyprus, and naturally occurring gases having been inhaled throughout the Mediterranean world, most notably by the oracle at Delphi. Neither frankincense nor cannabis were native to Palestine, so both would have had to have been imported by the state at considerable expense, with frankincense coming from southern Arabia and the Horn of Africa. Cannabis is a little harder to track down. But its seeds aren't found archaeologically anywhere in the near east and it quite possibly came all the way from east asia this suggests that arad was an official temple run by the judahite state and may have been deliberately shut down around the year 715 bce when judahite kings were beginning to center religious practices around the temple in jerusalem returning to solomon's temple then we can assume that at least one of the altars inside the hechal would have been used for burning incense, and possibly even cannabis. The room, therefore, would have been much darker than the outside, though there may have been windows, and it would have been filled with a perfumed haze. Along the walls, the cedar planks were decorated with gordon-flowered signs. Finally, then, we reached the room at the western edge of the temple, the Debir, the Shrine, the Holy of Holies. This precise location was thought to be the dwelling place of the Israelite God, and this location at the western edge of the temple is the reason for the significance of the western wall today, the closest place to the Holy of Holies outside of the temple precinct itself. In ancient times, access to the Debir was also incredibly restricted. At least in later history of the kingdom of Judah, the Debir, the Holy of Holies, could only be entered once a year on Yom Kippur by the high priest. He would bring in incense and a special sacrifice of a goat's blood to sprinkle on the altar as part of an elaborate ceremony to cleanse the sins of the Israelites. On that day, he would also recite the Tetragrammaton, the pronunciation of the name YHWH, in front of the assembled people of Judah. The high priest would have entered the Holy of Holies through another recessed doorway built of olive wood, this one having five doorposts compared to the four measures found at the entrance to the temple. Through these doors was a cubic room, twenty cubits or thirty feet on every side, built of cedar wood and bedecked in gold. The centerpiece of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, the shrine containing the supposed tablets of Moses. The Debir was surrounded by two carved figures of cherubim, covered in gold, with their wings encircling the room and touching each other. There was also a cedar incense altar in the Holy of Holies, likewise covered in gold. When all the ceremonies were done, at the end of the day, the high priest would return to clean up the Holy of Holies before exiting, leaving it closed for another year. And with that, we've concluded our look at the First Temple of Solomon. I hope you all had a meaningful Yom Kippur on High Holy Days, if you're Jewish, hopefully not filled with the blood of a slaughtered goat, and instead full of reflection and time with family. To return to secular business, we'll be back in two weeks' time to watch as Solomon's kingdom crumbled apart and the age of the divided monarchy began. In the meantime, you can find us at the website, historyofthejewishpeople.wordpress.com, or you can reach us directly by email at historyofthejewishpeople at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram at historyofthejewishpeople, where this week I've posted something about the discovery of cannabis at Tell Arad. As always... The music for this show was written and produced by Jacob Shaw. And finally, thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in next time for Episode 8, A House Divided.